This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. That was good. Good morning. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 13. If you want to start heading there in your Bibles, uh, I can't tell you how good it is to be home. We had a good time. I am worn out. But this is our home and you are our family. So can't wait to catch up with each of you and see what's been going on in life. I thought what we would do for the next few weeks is I would just preach to you some of the stuff that I worked on in Chicago. And I thought for this week, let's make it interesting. What's the weirdest verse we could find in the Bible? Let's do that. So if you're there, read with me. Revelation chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. The beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and gave and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. They worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? The beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name and His dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. And then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercised the same authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it was allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast and that, was, that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. There's no going back now. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, it is such a wonderful blessing to be back with my family and those that you have have knit us together with, and I thank you for that great blessing. I pray, Lord, that today you would reveal yourself in your word, that you would encourage your saints, warn and instruct and admonish us, so that ultimately, Lord, we would be a a better witness, give a, a better testimony of you and your faithfulness and your love. Father, it is in Jesus' name that I pray these things. Amen. Amen. I want you to picture Normandy Beach, June 6th, 1944. There's death, chaos reigning around you. Bullets are whizzing by, mortars are exploding. Panic has gripped many others around you. Yet out of the corner of your eye, you see something very odd. You see a family having a picnic on the beach. Now, they have their blankets set out, half in a crater and half out. They have their lemonade and their sandwiches and their cookies. And, of course, the the chaos going on around them is annoying. Mortars kick up sand on their spread and the bullets buzz by their ears like gnats. But otherwise, they seem oblivious to what's going on around them. I want you to picture that battle scene because I think it's akin to what John is describing here. And even though the idea of a family having a picnic on Normandy Beach is ridiculous, I wonder. I wonder how many people are living their lives like a noonday picnic on Normandy Beach. Blind to the battle. Captivated by consumerism. Now I know passages like Revelation 13, they can sound weird and complicated and unusual. So before we get started, I want to make sure you understand that wasn't John's intent. John didn't write this to first century Christians like, here's some weird things. There's that. Good luck. And left. No. He intended this to be an encouragement to Christians who were struggling to stay afloat in a world that was set against them. So what I want you to see is that what John is doing is not complicated and weird, but simple and profound. Meaning John is painting for us a simple yet very vivid picture of the battle raging all around us. And he's giving us all these details, not to confuse us or scare us, but to emphasize the weight of what's happening. However, with that vivid simplicity also comes a very clear directive. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. This morning, I want to convince you of our need to hold fast. I want to convince you this morning of our need to hold fast. To hold fast when these earthly powers try to crush us, and then to hold fast 
when these earthly powers try to seduce us, when they try to crush us, and when they try to seduce us. Look again at the beginning of Revelation 13, where John begins to call us to hold fast when these earthly powers try to crush us. He says, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. Now, before we continue, I want to point out something very, very important when we're reading a passage like this. Notice in verse 2 that John says this beast rising out of the sea was like a leopard and like a bear and like a lion. You see, it's very important to understand that John isn't literally seeing a beast rise out of the sea. This isn't some weird future version of Godzilla. Whatever he saw, the best way he could think to describe it was like a beast. Which begs the question, how do you know that? I mean, what is he seeing then? Well, you have to remember that John viewed life through the Old Testament. He was a Jew. From a young age, he would have been steeped in the Old Testament stories and traditions. In other words, we have to interpret this passage the same way he did. Through the Old Testament. And wouldn't you know, if we look in the Old Testament, we find that Daniel described the exact same beasts in Daniel 7. Except here's the cool part. God told Daniel what those beasts were. You see, Daniel also saw a leopard and a bear and a lion. But unlike John's beast, they were all separate beasts. And God told Daniel that those separate beasts represented individual kings and kingdoms that would come. Like Persia and Rome and that sort of thing. So if we interpret what John saw through the eyes of Daniel, an answer begins to emerge. John saw the same beast, which means he also saw kings and kingdoms and authorities. But in Revelation 13, they were all combined into one beast. Which means if if Daniel saw individual earthly kingdoms, then God must be showing John some kind of combined representation of those governments and authorities throughout the centuries. So just like Daniel, the best way John can think to describe them is kind of like a leopard and a bear and a lion. And notice in verse 3 and 4 that those earthly powers, they seem invincible. In verse 3, it looks like someone tried to kill it, and it looked like they had succeeded. It looked like a mortal wound, but no, this beast was healed, and it was doing fine. Which is why in verse 4, the people are saying, who can fight against it? It seems very invincible. Now, we could spend a lifetime trying to identify all the specifics about what John is describing, but listen, that's not the point. Remember, vivid. Vivid. What John doesn't want us to miss is that none of these earthly powers are friendly. Like he didn't say it has a head like a labradoodle and feet like a duck. (laughs) All these animals want to eat you. And he did that for a reason. He says in verse 5 through 7 that these dangerous, seemingly invincible earthly powers are making war against a specific group of people. 
He says they are blaspheming, that they are making war on God and His saints. In other words, John is describing the seemingly invincible authorities that first century Christians would have been very familiar with. Authorities who wanted to crush Christians, whose don't tread on me flags had long since been ground into dust. Which is why John is urging them, hold fast when these powers try to crush you. But friend, John isn't just speaking to them. You see, we're beginning to get a small taste of this beast in our culture. Like what would happen tomorrow if at your work or at your school you stood up and said out loud, men are men and women are women. And, and marriage is between one natural born man and one natural born woman. Or what if you went to your work and your school and just said as loud as you could, I'm so glad the Supreme Court banned abortions. What would happen? In fact, let me read you what a sitting U.S. Senator said a couple weeks ago about crisis pregnancy centers like CareNet. They said, and I quote, In Massachusetts right now, those crisis pregnancy centers that are there to fool people who are looking for pregnancy termination help outnumber true abortion clinics by three to one. We need to shut them down here in Massachusetts, and we need to shut them down all around the country. You should not be able to torture a pregnant person like that, end quote. That's a sitting U.S. senator. We too must hold fast as these earthly powers begin to try to crush us. Which means, listen to me, especially as Americans, especially as American Christians, we need to pay careful attention to what John tells us he means by hold fast. Notice he does not say fight back. He doesn't say that we must hold fast to our rights to free speech and gun ownership and jurisprudence. No, look at verses 9 through 11. He says, if anyone has an ear to hear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, then the sword with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Saints, holding the, the, the holding fast that John is talking about is enduring imprisonment and execution. Now you might be thinking, but Grant, we, we have legislative and, and judicial rights. I mean, are, are you saying that we shouldn't fight back against these forces at all? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that we need to be ready to face this beast that we're not really facing yet. But I had to wear a face mask. I know. That was an inconvenience, not persecution. So absolutely, while we're still blessed with, with, with a legal and a legislative system that, that gives us these rights, we should exercise them as much as we can. 
However, we must be careful where we put our hope and trust now. Because those things are not going to last forever. There will come a time when those rights and freedoms are taken away. A time when the American government will turn its eye on God's people, and when that time comes, a decision will have to be made. What will you do when your Bill of Rights is suspended or done away with completely? What will you do when, like so many Christians throughout the centuries, not to mention the world today, like them, we too face authorities who not only have the desire, but the legal right to crush us. Because John says when that happens, brothers and sisters, to he who has an ear, let him hear. If he is to go to captivity, then to captivity he goes. If he is to be slain by the sword, then by the sword must he be slain. This is a call for endurance and faith. However, before you recoil too much, before you completely tune me out or go home this afternoon and dig a bunker in your backyard, some of you probably need to fill one in. Ask yourself, why did John link our endurance with faith? Why did he link endurance with faith there at the end of verse 10? Don't miss the impregnable bomb shelter that he snuck in under the radar for us in verse 8. He says the people who will fall prey, who, who will worship this beast, are those whose names have not been written in the, before the foundations of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. That's us. We're the ones whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life. Let me say that again. Have been written. Past tense. Which means when the time comes, hold fast, dear brothers and sisters, to the faith that the worst this thing can do to us is expedite our reunion with our Savior. In fact, listen to what our brother Paul told us in Colossians chapter 2. He said, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood among us against, it, against us with its legal demands. He's describing how our name got written. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. And now listen. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Which means, like the martyr John Huss who sang as he was burned alive, like, like the martyrs Hugh Latimer who, who, who said to Mr. Ridley, if we are to be burned today, then by God's grace let us light such a torch that it will never be put out. Brothers and sisters, like them, the hope we have to cling to is an ancient hope. It's a hope that is anchored to the mercy seat in heaven like iron fused with rock. 
It's a hope that allows us to say, in the face of, of great persecution, bring it. Bring it. Because my Savior has already put you to open shame. So, so the only thing you can do to me is fracture this fragile vessel and expose the light of Christ, or better yet, just send me home. Hold fast, brothers and sisters, when these seemingly invincible earthly powers try to crush us. Hold fast to the hope that your name was inscribed in the Lamb's book of life with the eternal ink of the blood of Christ before the foundations of the world. Now, I could go into any number of ways this might play out in our lives, but I'd rather not talk about what-ifs. I'd rather just ask you a simple question. Where is your hope and your trust now? At a time when it seems like those in authority over us are pursuing depravity and wickedness as fast as they can, what is your Hope reflex now. Because how you will endure then will be determined by where your hope is now. You're not going to hope in something now and then all of a sudden change then and hope in something different. So right now, what is your hope reflex? Is your reflex to hope that we can somehow tame this beast by electing someone who will cause it to act unlike its nature? Or is your reflex to hope, to believe, to link your endurance with the faith that if God was willing to dip His quill into the blood of His Son in order to write your name in His book of life, will He not, will He not guard you and protect you and not allow anything that he hasn't ordained? And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that we're looking for pain or suffering or heartache, but when it comes, like H.B. Charles said, our hope is that Jesus has tattoos. And today is when we train our reflexes to put our hope in the truth that our names are etched into the hands of Christ. So rather than setting up your own picnic on Normandy Beach, do you, like our father David, believe that your God will set a table for you? That He will set a table for you in the presence of your enemies, not in the absence of them. If you're here this morning and you don't have this hope I'm describing, I hope you want it. Because the only way you can have it is to believe in this Jesus Believe that he died and rose again for you. But like I said, we aren't really facing this beast yet if we're honest with ourselves. We don't have a government that is openly, violently, and consistently trying to crush Christians with imprisonment and death. But just because it's not a direct attack doesn't mean we're not under attack. You see, John tells us that there is another more subtle beast, which means that not only are we to hold fast when earthly powers try to crush us, but second, look at verses 11 and 12 where John tells us we must hold fast when earthly powers try to seduce us. 
He says, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence, and it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. In other words, this, this beast appears tame and docile like a lamb, but underneath it has the same power as the first Look at verse 13 and 14, because this beast is going to exercise that power differently. He says, It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. So, where the first beast imprisoned and executes God's saints if they don't turn from him, this beast is going to try to woo and seduce God's people into forsaking him. And I know that begs the question again, how? Well, John describes this beast doing amazing things in verse 13 to deceive people into worshiping the first beast. And again, John is making a clear reference to the Old Testament when Elijah called down fire from heaven in order to prove, in order to, to show Israel that God was God and not Baal. In other words, what John is describing is a very vivid picture of this beast impressing and, and dazzling God's people into idolatry. What does that look like today? Here's just a couple of examples so you can see what, what this looks like, at least in our culture. It looks different all over the place at, at different times. But, but listen, in our culture, this beast, it looks like rampant consumerism. All the shiny things we need that captivate us, soak up the wealth we've been blessed with to further the kingdom of heaven. This beast looks like men like Joel Osteen and Kenneth Copeland and Stephen Furtick who deceive hundreds of thousands of people every week into believing that, that God wants nothing for them but riches and, and power and success. This beast looks like the inability for a legitimate study to be done in our culture on the lasting effects of pornography because researchers can't find a large enough control group of people who are not involved with it. It even looks like the amazing things that education can lead to being labeled as the definition of success. I would tell you this, brothers and sisters, this second beast is, is wreaking havoc on the American church right now. Right now. It is drawing and wooing and seducing hundreds of thousands of people away from God. And, and I would beg you not to dismiss me too quickly, but rather to examine yourselves. What do you think about and talk about when you sit down and when you, when you walk along the way and when you lie down and when you rise up? What, what are the things, who do you find so important, so amazing that, that you can't wait to tell others about them? 
When you get to work or school, did you see this? Did you hear that? What are those things that impressed you so much? Because even though this beast's tactics are, are more subtle and seductive, notice in verse 16 and 17 that his target is the same. It's those who he could lead away from God. He says, It causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, both slave and free, in verse 16, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead with the mark of the number of its name, at the end of verse 18, he says it's 666. Now, I know this whole mark on the head and hands and 666, it's at least confusing, if not crazy controversial, okay? But remember, John isn't trying to confuse us. This isn't the Da Vinci Code. You've got to figure this out. Remember, John saw things through the lens of the Old Testament. And just like with the beasts, this language about something written on foreheads and hands was used in the Old Testament also, already. And every Jew from a very young age would have had it memorized. It was like the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. It goes like this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Right? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your might and all your soul. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them to your children and you shall talk about them while you walk along the way. When you sit down, when you rise. Now listen. He says in verse 8, this is Deuteronomy chapter 6, sorry. He says, and you shall tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them to your foreheads. You see, John knew the Bible already talked about something being symbol symbolically written on our heads and hands. It was the mark of those who have God's word written on their hearts. In fact, back in Revelation, if you just peek ahead at chapter 14, verse 1, you'll see it again. He says, I looked and behold, Mount Zion, 144,000, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. In other words, John isn't describing literal marks. This, this isn't some kind of government program to tattoo a number on your face or, or implant you with a tracker. They did that a long time ago with phones. John's simply describing how people are distinguished by their devotion. How they're labeled by their loyalty. How they are categorized by whose commands have been written on their minds and hearts. John is simply saying that the saints, the people who have not been wooed by this beast because they have God's law written on their hearts, are going to be noticeable. What they talk about and who's important to them is going to cause them to stick out as if they had something written on their face or their hand. question is obvious. Do you stick out? Does what you think about God, how amazing and incredible He is, His laws that have been written onto your heart, does how you see your God, is it so noticeable? Is it so obvious that it's as if you had something marked across your face? 
Hold fast, brothers and sisters. Hold fast when these earthly powers try to seduce us. Whereas John told us to hold fast by endurance with the first beast, because this beast is, is seductive, Verse 18, John tells us that we are to hold fast through wisdom. Wisdom that can discern when we're being seduced to follow something other than God. Wisdom to discern when our hearts are being wooed and drawn toward idolatry. Maybe some of you are thinking, Pastor Grant, this this frightens me because I'm afraid I might have already been seduced by this, this beast in one way or another. Well, I would say that's because you've relied on your own wisdom. You see, in the very first proverb, the wisest man who ever lived said that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. In other words, wisdom begins with having a right understanding that your God is not only far more terrifying than any of these beasts, But he is also far more beautiful and attractive and satisfying and fulfilling than anything this beast could put in front of you to tempt you. That's the beginning of wisdom. And then knowing that that terrifyingly beautiful God is on your side. Because the more you know who your God is, the better you'll know the wisdom that John is describing here is not your own. Remember back in Colossians 2 where Paul talked about Christians, or about Christ, excuse me, putting those authorities to shame. Notice what he said right after that in Colossians chapter 2. He said, therefore, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. That is a perfect definition of this beast. He says, because in him, this is Christ, see to it they don't take you captive, because in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now listen in verse 10, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Let me say that again. You have been filled with the one who is the the whole fullness of deity dwells. In other words, brothers and sisters, we can hold fast when these earthly powers try to crush us because our Lord and Savior has already put them to open shame when He nailed our sins to the cross. But we can also hold fast when these earthly powers try to seduce us and woo us because we have been filled with that same Savior who is the very power and wisdom of God. The very wisdom of God is living inside of you and I through His Spirit. So so we don't have to figure this out on our own. No, here's my point. When it comes to this wisdom, we have need of only one thing. You want the wisdom to sniff out this beast? Then like a treasury agent who who studies the real thing in order to pick out forgeries. We simply have need of getting to know our Savior better. That's wisdom. Spending time with Him in His Word and prayer and trusting that He will be faithful to His promises to, to shepherd us through this life. 
and that He'll speak to our hearts the wisdom we need to discern truth because we know the real thing. Because when we do that, when we know better and better how terrifyingly beautiful our God is, the better we'll be able to look at the trinkets and seductions of this world and say, you don't tempt me. You don't impress me. Because you don't hold a candle to the one who put you to open shame, wrote my name in his book of life with the blood of Christ. I know him, and that's not you. Saints, make no mistake, we are under attack. There are evil forces trying every day to conquer and seduce us away from our Lord. And whether it be through, through, through brute force or subterfuge, these powerful earthly forces will, will not stop until Christ comes, but we, we can hold fast, brothers and sisters. When these earthly powers try to, try to crush us, we can hold fast by enduring great persecution because our names have already been written in the book of life. While these earthly powers try to seduce us, we can hold fast through wisdom because we know who Christ is and He lives inside of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You today for Your Word. I thank You for the the way that you are, are able to give hope in the darkest of places. That you are... It's amazing to me, Lord, that you are able to stand us up in front of terrifying beasts and give us confidence and assurance and hope. And Lord, we know that is because you are so magnificent and so powerful and so able, and it is in that and for that we praise you. We thank you for calling us and drawing us into this relationship with you through our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we know that it is, it is only through him that this hope is made real. So, Father, it is in his name that I pray. Amen.